Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the end of Luke's account of Jesus' infancy and his, his childhood. And last week we looked at Mary and Joseph as good and faithful uh, Israelites completing her 40 days of purification according to the law, and in turn their consecration of Jesus to the Lord as their firstborn son, which was also in keeping with the law. And Luke gives us these details, not merely to show that Jesus kept the law from birth, which he did, but also to locate Jesus in the temple. The temple was, of course, the center of Israelite uh, identity and nationalism, but more importantly, the temple as a symbolic Eden, really uh, as a symbol of heaven come to earth, was the place where God met and communed with his people. And the idea, much like you see at the end of the book of Revelation, is that heaven comes to earth. And what God establishes in heaven, really the, the heavenly pattern, is the pattern for the earth. It's why Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus' priestly and prophetic and kingly roles all coalesce with the temple, even as he claimed to be the new temple and the new place through whom God would commune with his people. That's why he is also called Emmanuel, God with us. And as we saw last week, in the midst of his consecration, Luke introduces a man named Simeon, who's a man filled with the Holy Spirit, who was told by God that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Luke also introduces Anna, an elderly woman who had spent most of her life in prayer and fasting as a widow in the temple and who was also waiting on the Messiah. And these two faithful Israelites, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, earlier in the book of Luke, they represent the end of the Old Covenant, and in turn, like the laws concerning the need for two witnesses to establish the truth of a matter, they bear witness to Jesus as the Christ in the temple and proclaim that the glory of Israel had shown up in this child. So, all this to say, and just really a refresher, Luke wants us to see that this child, right from the beginning, is the hope of Israel, and in turn, the hope of the world and that the temple figures very importantly in all of that. Well, this week we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, in chapter 2 and look at the end of Luke's account of Jesus' childhood. So we're going to take it up with verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, 
Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together to meditate on your word. And we pray then that the Spirit might be among us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might see who Jesus is, that we might have understanding, and that we too might grow in wisdom in him. We pray all of this in his name, through the power of that same Spirit. Amen. Well, we read in verse 39 that after Mary and Joseph had completed everything according to the law, they went back to the region of Galilee, to the town of Nazareth. And Luke, assuming Matthew's gospel, skips over the family's flight from Bethlehem to Egypt because of Herod's attempt to kill Jesus. If you remember from Matthew's account, after Herod's death and the immediate threat to Jesus' life was over, instead of returning to Bethlehem, like I think was the plan, uh, at the warning of an angel in a dream, the family made their home with Mary's family in Galilee in the town of Nazareth, which was also in fulfillment of Scripture. Now, it's the next verse, verse 40, that together with verse 52 really bookends our section this morning. Verse 40 says this, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Then again, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, it's that middle section of verses 41 through 51 that gives an example of what Luke means by increasing in wisdom and stature. So even as we have little information about Jesus' early life, the story that Luke gives here is, I think, a window into his youth and what he was doing for those 30 or so years prior to the start of his public ministry. Now, as, as an aside, much of the questions we tend to entertain about Jesus' youth, like, you know, if Jesus had played basketball, if he played basketball, would he have ever missed a shot? Ever committed a foul? Would he have dunked on people? Uh, you know, such questions like that are predicated on either misunderstandings about the purpose and the nature of his miracles, or worse, we project onto Jesus our own sinful desires to be more than human. So, for example, what we see with superheroes, like, say, Superman, which was a blatant ripoff of Jesus, uh, makes them effectively non-human, right? They're aliens. They're not human whatsoever. And, of course, the real fiction in our cultural fascination with superheroes is, is that they would use their powers, which are almost always some sort of weapon, that they would use them for good. Unlike the Jedi or, say, Harry Potter, Jesus did not manipulate his creation or bend it to his will. All of creation responded to his word because he made it. Jesus didn't have so-called powers. He was God come in the flesh. He didn't come to be more than human. His humanity wasn't a cover. And he, uh, like Clark Kent, wasn't hiding 
his true self. And in turn, his miracles did not manipulate the natural world whatsoever. They redeemed it. This is why you never see Jesus flying or lifting impossible heavy objects or using laser eyes or moving objects with his mind or dunking on other basketball players. Uh, he didn't have to. That he's God incarnate. Superman, you see, can't heal anything. And he certainly couldn't feed thousands of people with a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish or raise someone from the dead with a word. But more so, no so-called superhero can redeem people from their sin. And that's the critical issue. That's the critical issue. So what we see in our passage is, in reality, though most Christians don't see it this way, it's far outstripping anything any so-called Superman could ever do. In fact, Superman did not have the strength or the will to do what we see in our passage this morning. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. Well, we read in verses 41 and 42 that Mary and Joseph made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Nazareth every year for Passover. And this was one of the three uh, feast days or weeks even that were commanded by God. The other two were the Feast of First Fruits or sometimes called Harvest or we think of it as Pentecost. And the other one being the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. And these, these feasts basically divided uh, the year for Israel uh, roughly into thirds between early spring with Passover, which marked the new year for them, and then moved to late May and early June with Pentecost, and then with the final harvest uh, in the fall with the Feast of Tabernacles. So why does God command these feasts? I mean, they're written in the law. In short, God confirms his life with his people through eating, through meals. So just as Adam and Eve lost table fellowship with God through eating, through eating what was held back from them. So Israel, as a new Adam, was invited back to the table with God. We see that pattern with Abraham and Moses and continuing on with these feasts too. In the Old Testament, you see worship always involved a meal with God, always. It's why the central ritual instituted by Christ is also a feast that replaces all three of these important Old Testament feasts. In fact, they all look forward to Christ himself. And with each of these feast days, all the males of Israel were commanded to go and present themselves to the Lord. And females were to go also as they were able. So why does God then require all men to make the trip to the tabernacle and the temple three times a year? Well... Deuteronomy 16 says everyone who can attend should attend, so it's not just, just males uh, that can go. And God even says in Exodus 34, 24, that he would protect Israel's lands in their absence while they were at these feats. So he, God is practical. He understands what's going on here. So like with the Sabbath, the feast days required trust and preparation for the trip and a willingness to let the land sit idle and unprotected for what could have been weeks at a time. And by the way, we're still called to weekly bring ourselves to God in worship and trust him for his provision. Even so, get to that question, why must all the males show up? Well, the law doesn't specifically give a rationale for that, but I think we can gather at least two important things from a wider 
reading of Scripture. First, this was a sort of offering. This was a sort of offering, as James Jordan argues, of, of Israel's sons to God, recognizing God's ownership over all things, including the people themselves. We are his possessions. Like Adam, Israel belonged to God and was considered God's son. So the offering of all the males, which is what this is, is reminiscent, say, of Abraham offering Isaac to God. Second, it's clear that the law was often read at these, at these feasts, and it was assumed that men, like Adam in the garden, should receive this word and lead their families in it. And this still applies today. Now, of course, of course, you can just read this in the book of Proverbs. Of course, women and mothers should teach their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I mean, that, that just goes without saying. But men and fathers are the ones who are primarily to lead their children in this. So Christian wives and children should rightly expect husbands and fathers to walk the walk and talk the talk. So Mary and Joseph went yearly to Passover, which was the feast remembering and celebrating the exodus from Egypt and how God provided an atonement for his people in the unblemished lamb so that the angel of the Lord would pass over every home, both Jew and Gentile, because this was true of Egyptians too who did this, because of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And already in Luke, we've seen Jesus consecrated as the firstborn son in the temple in keeping with Exodus 13. That was last week. A law tied directly to the Passover. And here, Jesus, the firstborn son, comes to the temple during Passover. Luke mentions Passover only twice in his gospel. Here and in chapter 22 during the final week of Jesus' life. So Luke's gospel begins and it ends in Jerusalem at the temple. And Passover figures prominently for understanding who Jesus is. And if you will remember from our study in John from, I guess, about a year ago, John also goes to great lengths to tie Jesus to the Passover lamb who was slain for the sins of the people. So why does the temple matter so much? Why does the, the temple matter so much? Well, the temple is where God gathered with his people, though at a distance. Where once Adam and Eve had enjoyed the Holy of Holies, which represented the garden or sanctuary of Eden in the place of the two trees, now only the high priest could enter, and only then once a year. The typical offering of prayers for the people was made in the holy place, which is right outside of the Holy of Holies, and that's where Zechariah was when Gabriel appeared to him. And this space in the temple represented the land of Eden itself. So picture this now, right? Uh, there's the land of Eden at large, and then there's the garden sanctuary within the land of Eden. So that's the Holy of Holies and then the holy place. Now the space outside of that symbolic Eden in the court of the temple where the altar was, the people offered their sacrifices basically at the door of the holy place. And this is just like Cain and Abel did outside of the east gate of Eden, if you'll remember that from Genesis 4. So outside of even that was the Gentile area that represented the nations like where Cain went to found his city. So all of that is going on 
in the temple. It's all pointing back to Genesis 1 through 4. So Jesus the Christ, our great high priest, was coming to gain entrance for all his people back to the Holy of Holies, to the garden sanctuary, by offering his life on the altar outside of the holy place, which is what he did at Golgotha. The temple then was, was rightly where atonement was made. And in turn, the temple was a symbol of what God promised to restore literally to humanity through his Messiah. So for good reason, Jesus focused much of his work at the temple. And he went all around Israel, bringing Israel back to that very place. And the way Luke constructs his gospel at large, and this is purposeful, Beginning and ending with the temple points to Jesus' purpose. And there's even just little easily overlooked details in our present passage that hint at what was to come too. So in verses 43 through 46, Luke tells us that Jesus stayed behind in the temple while his family headed back home. And his parents didn't notice his absence until a day later. And the language Luke uses here, what's translated as stayed behind, he uses elsewhere in his gospel for spiritually pursuing God, as in remaining or abiding in God. It's similar to Jesus' words to his disciples in his upper room discourse of John 13 through 17, abide in me and even as I abide in you. So why did Jesus stay behind? Well, he was abiding. He was abiding in God his Father in his Father's house. And this is precisely what Adam gave up with his rebellion and what David longed to enjoy. Now, as an aside, this did not mean that Mary and Joseph were bad parents for not immediately noticing Jesus' absence, even after a day, or conversely, that they believed in free-range parenting. It's rather that... Extended families or communities traveled together, especially on long trips like this one. I want to say it was roughly 75 to 80 miles between uh, Nazareth and Jerusalem, all of that being mostly done on, on foot. And so someone like, well, Kevin's mom in Home Alone, uh, Mary and, and Joseph could safely assume that Jesus was safe among the family. Once they realized he was not, with them, they headed back to Jerusalem immediately in what appears like a panic. Now, if his birth narrative anticipates his death the way that Luke writes it, as in they laid him in a manger in swaddling clothes, and then in turn they laid him in a tomb wrapped in linen, here Luke anticipates Jesus' resurrection. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple. Now, the phrase after three days isn't the only hint. If that was just the wording, then we might move on. Jesus' questions to his parents, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Is similar to the question put to the women at the tomb by the two angels. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Here in chapter 2, Mary treasured these things in her heart, just as the women at the tomb in chapter 24 remembered Jesus's words to them. So Luke's point is that Jesus's life is one continuous story. And so the beginning of his life in the temple anticipates the redemption of his people in that temple. He must, his life is entirely about 
his father's house and what he is doing for Israel. So Mary and Joseph, they find Jesus in the temple interacting with the teachers of Israel. And keep in mind, these aren't just any old teachers. These are the best and the brightest. It's like Jesus has shown up to MIT and he's talking engineering, right? He's in the temple interacting with the teachers of Israel and the people watching this exchange, because this is public, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. But again, don't see this how we might see some genius kid who can do a Rubik's Cube in six seconds blindfolded or you know, some other wonderkind who, who can do the parlor trick of adding up impossibly large numbers. That's not what this is. Luke doesn't highlight genius feats of thinking. No, he begins and ends the passage highlighting, highlighting both Jesus' wisdom but also his growth in wisdom and understanding. So he was wise beyond his years and did not sound like a typical 12-year-old. And as the word of God, it makes sense that he would know this word well. But notice that Luke doesn't say Jesus was challenging them or taking them down. That for sure would come Later, No, we get the impression that he was learning from them. He was submitting to their authority and teaching something that he did with his parents too. Mary and Joseph were astonished to find Jesus interacting with the teachers of Israel. And Mary said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So Mary, like, like any good mother... Now that the crisis was over, expressed her fear and perhaps exasperation and pulled, she even pulled the, your father and I were really worried about you move. Now Jesus, like we, we see in his public ministry, answered her question with a question that not only shows that he was not in sin, but that his parents, despite all they had experienced thus far, still did not quite see Jesus for who he really was. The one who was full of understanding, Luke brings out this contrast. The one who was full of understanding and growing in wisdom and favor was not understood by his parents, which of course anticipates his future ministry to Israel. If his parents are struggling to get him, how much more his wider family in Israel? Jesus' answer here is, is subtle. And I think it's a gentle correction to his mother. One, he says, Joseph is not his true father. But more so, and she should know that, but more so, Jesus redirected her to what Gabriel had told her, that her son was the son of God, and so Yahweh, the same God who had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, that's his father. So again, right from the start, it's clear that Jesus knew exactly who he was and what his purpose was, that he must be about this. So then, what are we to make of Jesus growing in wisdom in God's favor? Why say that twice? Why bookend this passage? And, and related to that, why is this the only story we have of Jesus' life between his infancy and his public ministry in his early 30s? Well, I think to understand what's happening you have to understand broadly what's happening again in Genesis 1 and 2. This is why I say I think they're the most philosophically deep and important uh, chapters really of all of humanity. 
God's creation, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation was good, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. Perfect implies completion in the sense that nothing more could be done with it. And the descriptions in Genesis 1 and 2 don't say that. As good as God's creation was, God intended humanity to be like him, to separate things out like what we see in chapter 1, him doing, to discover things in his creation and come up with something new. And we see Adam doing this very thing in Genesis 2 with the naming of the animals. It's not as if God didn't have names for them. He knew. He made them. This is what he wanted humanity to do and to be like him. And what that means is that God intended for humanity to go out from Eden, starting from the place of worship and communion with God in that sanctuary, and in turn cultivate and glorify what he had made. That's what dominion is. Dominion is not lording it over what God made. It's glorifying it. It's cultivating it. To see a practical example of how this works, just think of something as simple as the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. So we don't eat the heads of grain and clusters of grapes in that meal, both of which they're fine. They're good. No, both bread and wine are things that came about from human cultivation of what God made. Bread and wine are not obvious results that you can immediately see with grain and grapes. So you don't just look at a grain field, or you don't just look at grapes and say, I've got an idea, watch this. No, it's not, it's not obvious whatsoever. Now, even as you can, you can eat those things, they're nutritious, but bread and wine are far more glorious. And that is what godly wisdom actually looks like. Now think of this in terms of the three important roles in the Bible uh, that you see throughout the Old Testament and the New, priests, kings, and prophets, which are all things that Jesus fulfilled. In fact, Hebrews says that. He's our prophet, priest, and king. Priests do not merely offer sacrifices, though they do that. They are called, like what we see in Genesis 2 with Adam, to guard and keep the sanctuary. And this is repeated with the Levites and the tabernacle and the temple, uh, even the way that they were supposed to camp out around the tabernacle indicates that they were the guards of the, the, the tabernacle. So if priests attempt to do their calling in their own wisdom or on their own terms, the result is not worship but idolatry, or we should say false worship. And like with Adam, when we disregard God's word, we destroy our communion with God, and if that communion is ruptured, then everything else uh, will be set to misdirected ends. It's why the first step in rebellion against God is either refusal to worship him or much more commonly to take it lightly. And so, as, as Paul says in Romans 1, humanity in our so-called wisdom rejected God and in turn, instead of having dominion over creation, worshiped the creation instead and became subjugated to it, and he in turn gave humanity over to debased and depraved minds of which sexual perversion is a sign of. It's a sign of it. Likewise, kings, just think of David. They have to learn how to rule through submission and obedience to other authorities. David learned this both as a shepherd and, and, and through his wilderness wanderings on the run from Saul. And the expectation for kings and, and for humanity is that we would grow from immaturity to wisdom, from grapes 
to wine and in turn have the privilege of rule when we are ready for it. This is why the tree of knowledge of good and evil was held back from Adam. He was immature and needed instruction before God would give him access to it. It's why, for example, in the list of commands given to kings in Deuteronomy, it was expected that the king would write down the entirety of the law by his own hand, putting it into his own mind. So, for example, just as I intend for all my sons to drive, I don't just hand them the keys at age 8 or 15 and say, have at it. Good luck with all that. No, they must learn obedience and submission to parental instruction and be trained before they are ready to take the wheel. The same holds true with prophets. Bear with me. Just bear with me. On the one hand, they were to communicate God's word exactly to the people. It's not their word, it's his word. But on the other hand, the expectation, like what we see with Abraham, and Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, even Jonah, is that they would have the privilege of being included in the divine council and will be able to talk with God and make plans with him. So just think of Abraham debating with God over the judgment on Sodom. So this idea of humanity growing into maturity and in turn recovering our treasured place of communion with God, that's our priesthood. And having dominion over what God made, that's, that's kingly rule. And in turn, dialoguing with God, that's the prophetic, that is all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. But in our sin, we can't make this happen. We just can't do it. What is needed is a new and better Adam who can stand for us. So, what was Jesus doing in his childhood? Why does this one story stand in for all of Jesus' early life? Well, like Moses' 40-year stint as a shepherd in Midian before leading Israel out of Egypt, Jesus, the God-man, and the new Adam was growing in wisdom and favor and submission to God and the authorities he had put in place because we could not do that. We could not do that. Jesus learned submission and went through a long period of discipleship, and he joyfully did this as the Son of God. And he didn't just do it as a child. He did it all the way to the cross. It's why before he enters into his public ministry, and we'll get to this soon, he undergoes testing, just as Adam did, to see if, in the words of Proverbs 1, he truly feared the Lord and, in turn, was the true Adam. Even Jesus' early life as a carpenter points to his willing submission to someone else's teaching and guidance and in turn learning how to take what God had made, glorify it, making it into something new like, say, furniture, and in turn distributing it to others. If you want to see human Jesus, look to him as an actual, real carpenter because it is at the heart of godly wisdom so the boy Jesus he wasn't dunking on his friends and he wasn't wowing his neighbors with miracles no he was doing something far more spectacular though we don't recognize it as such he was learning submission and obedience to God his father through the authorities he had put in place and in turn he grew in wisdom and favor and because of him 
Because of our priest, our king, and our prophet, we have life. We have been restored in communion with God, and we have our very humanity restored to us. This is why your work and what you do with your day absolutely matters. It is an incredibly human thing. It's why the call to obedience and learning to walk as Jesus walked is the call of every Christian. And this calling, while it is clearly difficult at times, is not a burden, but it's actually freedom. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 11, I'll end with his words because they're much better than mine. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's kingly. It's priestly. It's prophetic. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Messiah, for the Christ, who did for us what we could not do. He is the true Adam. He is our prophet, our priest, our king. He is the one who has revealed what true humanity looks like, and he is the one who has given it back to us. We give you thanks for this life we have now, and we give you thanks for the life that is to come, that will be filled with godly wisdom, and how productive and beautiful and glorifying that will be. We give you thanks again in Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen.